Last Sunday we started a series in the book of James. We looked at the trials of, of life. And today James addresses temptation. I don't know about you, but I get tired sometimes of all the temptations that come our way. When God's Word gives us some good instruction here in James chapter 1. We start reading at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for life, for spiritual life, for eternal life, for abundant life. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word today. Teach us, Lord, what we need to know about the temptations that come our way. And thank you, Lord, that we are more than conquerors. Through you, Lord Jesus, who loved us so, we pray these things in your precious name and for your sake. Amen. There was an old lion that was too weak to hunt for food, so he decided he had to get his food another way. And so he laid down in the cave pretending to be ill, and whenever animals came to visit him, he seized them and ate them. Well, one day there was a, a wise fox that came to visit the lion. And he stood at a distance from the cave and inquired how the lion was doing. Bad, he said. Really bad. And then he asked the fox why he didn't come in to his cave. And the fox said, I, I would have come in, but I saw a lot of tracks going in. And there were none coming out. <laughs> Very wise fox, indeed. First Peter chapter 5, verse 7 describes the devil as a lion. As a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. One just, you know, roaring and chasing us. And yet Satan works in some interesting ways, doesn't he? Often in deceptive ways. He comes as an angel of light. And sometimes people are fooled by that and deceived by that and they fall into temptation. And the result is destruction. And that's why we need to know how to deal with temptation. We don't want to be a casualty of temptation. Because we look around us in the world today and there are all kinds of people that are casualties of temptation. They have been deceived, and their lives have been 
destroyed in, in many ways. And so James tells us three things about how we triumph over temptation. And he begins with an interesting statement here. We triumph over temptation by refusing to blame God for our sin. It's even blasphemous to think such a thought, wouldn't it be? To blame, to actually blame God for our sin? Ever notice how difficult it is to take responsibility for what we've done? It is so easy to blame others and so hard to blame ourselves. We see that, don't we, in, in the lives of children? How many times have you heard a child say, He made me do it. Huh? He made me do it. Or it wasn't my fault. Or what was I supposed to do? Right? All kinds of ways in which they don't want to claim responsibility. Now I wish we could say that we completely outgrow that when we become adults, right? We completely outgrow this blaming spirit that wants to say it wasn't really my fault. We just get a little better at blaming others in ways that don't sound so obvious. When did the blame game start? You know when it started, don't you? It started right in the Garden of Eden. Right after Adam and Eve had sinned, God came to Adam and said, Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat from? And Adam's response is classic. He said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Now, it appears as if he's blaming Eve, and there's a certain sense in which he is doing that, right? She gave it to me. But who is he really blaming here? I would suggest to you that Adam is really pointing the finger at God. He says, the woman that you gave to me, Lord, as if to say, if you hadn't given me this woman, I wouldn't have done this. <laughs> the woman you gave me. It wasn't me, Lord. It was Eve. And so then... Uh, <laughs> The Lord comes to Eve, and, and uh, guess what? She, she, she does the same thing, because the Lord God said to the woman in Genesis 3.13, What is this you've done? And she said, The serpent deceived me. So Adam said, The woman you gave me. Eve said, The serpent deceived me. And there we have it, right? There it is, and that goes on and on and on throughout all time. We just don't want to claim responsibility. Richard Lenski says in his commentary, there are all manner of ways in which the blame for our sin is shifted to God. Did God not make us with these bodily appetites of ours? Did God not make so many things attractive to us? Does He not place them so dangerously near to us? It's amazing how our minds can rationalize that the sin we've committed isn't really our fault. That's how d deeply sin has corrupted us. I came across a verse in Proverbs 19 that was really quite striking. Proverbs 19 verse 3 says, The foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. 
Isn't that amazing? We, by our own sinful ways, we, we ruin things, and then we have the gall to blame God. Adam did that, and people are doing that even today. So James says there are two very clear reasons why we can't blame God for our sin. And the first one is that God cannot be tempted by evil. God is perfectly righteous and holy, and therefore evil has no power over him. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. One author puts it this way. He says the nature of evil makes it inherently foreign to God. The two are mutually exclusive in the most complete and profound sense. God and evil exist in two distinct realms and they never meet. So we can never say that God has tempted us to sin because God can't be tempted by evil. And a second reason James gives that we can't blame God for our sin is because God gives to us only What is good? Look at verse 16. He says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God gives only what is good. So there is no way we could ever say that God has tempted us to sin. James gives an interesting picture of God's goodness here. He calls God the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So as the Father of lights, God has created all that is light. He created the sun, the moon, the stars, but with these lights there is variation, isn't there? Brighter during the day than at night. Brighter at noon than at dusk. The sun is brighter than the moon and so forth. And because of how our solar system works, these lights do create shifting shadows, don't they? As the sun rises in the east, sets in the west, there are shadows that shift along with it. But with God, there is no variation whatsoever. With God, there is no change. He is always good. He only gives what is good. And that's why we cannot blame God for our sin. So who do we blame then? Who do we blame? Well, the devil made me do it, right? How many times have you heard that? We blame the devil for all of our sin. Or blame the world, right? We live in a sinful world, and if we didn't live in a sinful world, I wouldn't fall for this. Does James agree with that? No, he doesn't. In verse 14 he says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Which is to say, we are the ones to blame. We are the ones that need to claim responsibility for our sin because that is the first step to victory, isn't it? 
The first step to victory is that we claim responsibility for what we have done. As long as we look upon ourselves as victims, there's no hope, is there? Because if we're just victims, then the fault is always somebody else out there. And that's a slippery slope. When you start going down that road, I'll tell you what, you're in trouble. And that's such a huge problem in our culture today. Everybody's a victim. In one way or another, everyone's a victim. And if this doesn't change, we are headed down a slippery slope that ends in destruction. So we must be willing to say, I have sinned. It is my problem. I have no one to blame but myself. And that's always the first step. Taking responsibility for what I've done. The second thing James tells us, we triumph over temptation by recognizing the steps into sin. Did you notice how he describes how temptation works? He gives three steps here. The first one in verse 14, he says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now that's an interesting phrase, carried away and enticed. It's actually taken from the realm of fishing. Any fishermen here? Anybody like to fish? Dave Borg sent me some pictures from Florida. Yeah, when it's cold here, he's out there in the sun, you know, pulling in these fish, you know. So I know we've got a few fishermen here. And the word translated enticed comes from the word for bait. Okay, so we are baited, carried away and enticed. Why do you use bait, huh? Bait attracts fish. Bait lures them out of their place of safety to follow after that which would snare them. And that's why we often call those things that we tie on the end of our fishing line a lure. Huh? A lure. Do you know how much money is spent each year in our country on fishing lures? The most recent statistics I could find was 2016. That's five years ago. In 2016, we spent in our country $852 million on fishing lures. It's got to be over a billion. Just think of that. A billion dollars spent on fishing lures. <laughs> Quite interesting. So bait attracts the fish, and bait is a way of, of, of hiding the consequences. The fish doesn't notice the hook that's embedded in the lure until it's too late. He thinks he's going to have a tasty meal. But who becomes the tasty meal? That fish that bites on that lure, he becomes the tasty meal. He never paid attention to the poem. Fishy, fishy in the brook. Right? Daddy catch him by the hook. Mommy fry him in the pan and baby eat him like a man. He never paid attention to that one, did he? Right? And think of it. Isn't that the way it works with temptation? 
The bait looks so attractive. The thing with which we are tempted looks so good. And we don't consider the consequences of our sin until it's too late. We've been enticed. We've been carried away. And we we go after that which promises, right, such joy and fun. And then when we get caught, we look back and say, how foolish, how foolish could I be? I think of the life of Lot. Remember when Abraham and Lot separated, the land became not able to support them both. And and Abraham was the uncle and and Lot was the nephew. And yet Abraham said, Lot, you choose first and, and I'll take whatever you don't choose. Remember what the scripture says about Lot in Genesis 13.10. He lifted up his eyes and he saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. It looked so good, didn't it? Oh, if I could just have that land. But he didn't look ahead to see where that would lead him. He didn't think of the price he would pay by bringing his family into what city? Sodom. The most wicked, evil city of the day. And he lost. He lost his wife. You remember, she became a pillar of salt. She looked back. He lost his sons-in-law. To be married to his daughters, they were destroyed in the city. He lost the respect of his daughters. Someone has said that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. That is true, isn't it? And there are lives all over this world, people's lives all over this world, who would attest to the truth of that statement. Sin took them a lot farther than they wanted to go, kept them a lot longer than they wanted to stay, cost them a lot more than they wanted to pay. But they thought they could toy with it, play with it. And then I'll get to a point where I'll stop. It's a slippery slope. Because once you start following after that which will lead to destruction, boy, I'll tell you, you get enticed and you get hooked. You get caught. And think of the pain that sin brings into people's lives. Our Kent Hughes tells of how he and his wife and Boys spent a week fishing in, in northern Maine. And he said it was the final hour of the final day that his boys caught the biggest smallmouth bass he had ever seen. Five pounds, one ounce. Those of you who are smallmouth bass fishermen will know that that's a big bass. That's a very large smallmouth bass. And he says that old bass, the best I can tell, was over ten years old. For 3,650 days, he resisted every ploy known to man around Grand Lake Stream, Maine, until August of 1989. On that fateful afternoon, he says, my boys were slowly trolling a salmon-colored, soft plastic spinner-bladed jig, innocuously named Little Fishy. (laughs) 
<laughs> it passed by the lair of the monster bass. The combination of the speed of the lure, its depth, the slant of the sun, the refraction of the light, ineluctably dragged the old bronze-backed bass away from his lair. Just as the Greek words dragged away in our text describe he says, then he began to follow the lure, enticed, as our text has it, by its peculiar wiggle and deliberate fibrillations, that he opened his mouth wide and in a sudden burst engulfed the jig. He said, my boys' shouts echoed across the lake, and today that fish's grand, painted, mummified form graces my son's wall. I wonder if Dwight Forsberg was the one that took care of that big bass, huh? <laughs> Little fishy. Got him. Fooled him. Followed after that which just enticed him. And he lost his life. That big old bass. So that's where it starts, right? We are enticed carried away by our own lust. And then James says, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, that's an interesting word, conceived. He's, he's giving us now not a, a, a fishing lesson, but a biology lesson. We know that life begins at conception, right? From the moment those two cells unite there is life. And so James is actually applying this to temptation. And he says when, when temptation unites with our will or our desire, we entertain that and we act on that, it gives birth then to sin. One author says desire is able to conceive when man's will no longer objects but yields. In other words, the tempter says to us, wouldn't it be great if you did this? And our will says, yeah, that would. That would. Our lust gives birth to sin. And then James says, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, what is the result? It brings forth death. What you thought was going to be life, what you thought was going to be joy and, and all these wonderful things ends up destroying you. Unrepented sin, what happens? It brings death. Physically and eternally. I read an interesting story about the sea lion. Very clumsy looking creature. I don't know if you've uh, watched any of uh, nature programs on TV, but we, we saw one recently, and the male sea lion has this ugly <laughs> hanging flesh uh, over its face. It's just the grossest looking thing, but their favorite meal is seagulls. And I'd be happy to let them eat as many seagulls that are around here, especially in Duluth. I grew up in that area. You go downtown by the lakeshore, you know, and you've got people feeding them. And I say, do not feed them. We don't want them here. <laughs> they make it dirty here. Well, these sea lions like the seagulls, and they know they're not going to 
catch them. If you've ever seen how they're on the land, you know, they're just like, you know, just, that look okay? I got the blubber to... <laughs> and so what they do is when the seagulls are flying low to the water, then they'll go in the water and they'll come and they'll just stick their nose above the water and then the, their body will spin around in a circle. And to the seagull, it looks like a bug. And when the seagull comes down to grab that, what he thinks is a bug, wow, then the sea lion gets his lunch. Pretty sneaky, huh? Pretty deceptive. And that's the battle that we face. Satan is so deceptive that many fall for his temptations. If we examine how we are tempted, I think we'll probably see some patterns in our lives. Situations where if we put ourselves in that situation, we know we're going to be tempted. Would you agree? Some people are tempted more when they're alone. And that's why men who travel look out. When you get in that motel room or that TV is there, you're all alone, nobody knows what's going on. Sometimes when we're alone, that's, that's when we're tempted. Others are tempted when they're tired, stressed out, you know you're headed for temptation. Others are tempted after a great spiritual victory. That's a pattern we see in Scripture. And so when we know in what circumstances we are likely to be tempted, we need to avoid those situations so we don't put ourselves in a position where we are enticed and, and dragged away. I remember hearing a story about this man that had been an alcoholic, and this was back in the days of the of horse and buggy. And he decided that was it. No more drunkenness. And, and yet, after church on Sunday, he would stop at the saloon. And finally, someone said, well, where are you hitching your horse? He said, well, I'm hitching my horse outside the saloon. He said, brother, you need, you need to change your hitching post. You are putting yourself in a situation where you know you're going to be tempted. That is so unwise. And so we'll see patterns in our life where, where we are faced with more temptation. We need to avoid them like the plague. Joseph, what did he do? He ran. He got out of there. And that's what we need to do as well. The third thing James tells us here, we triumph over temptation by experiencing God's power over sin. Do you realize that temptation is powerful? Temptation is such a powerful force that we cannot overcome that in our own strength. We need a power beyond our own. We are weak. And the only place we find that power is in the Lord. Notice what James says in verse 18. He tells us 
How we begin to experience that power in our lives when, when we are born again, when we are given spiritual life. He says in verse 18, In the exercise of His will, God brought us forth by the word of truth. The phrase, brought us forth, is another way of saying born again. Another way of saying that we have spiritual life. Uh, the, the Christian standard Bible says, He gave us birth. <laughs> Not talking about physical birth, but spiritual birth. We are given spiritual life to the Lord. And there's a reason why we need a spiritual birth in our lives if we're going to overcome temptation. It's because we have a problem. You know what that problem is? We are spiritually dead. And we need new life if we are ever going to overcome temptation. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is so clear. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, there's the first enemy, according to the prince of the power of the air, there's our second enemy. And then he says in verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. There's the third enemy, right? The devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. And this is how powerless we are over temptation when we don't know Jesus. We follow the ways of the devil, the world, and our flesh. But I'm glad Paul does not end there because in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, he says, But God. (laughs) Those are wonderful words, right? This is what you are apart from Jesus, but God has something to say about that. Being rich in mercy... Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So in our helpless condition of spiritual death, God is able to raise us to spiritual life, and that makes a difference when we face temptation. A power we didn't have before. Until we meet Jesus. And notice how God does that in our life. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. By the word of God. We are born again through the power of the word of God. The word of truth. That shows us, first of all, our true condition. And then points us to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. That changes the way we live. Now, does that mean that the struggle with temptation is forever gone? I wish that were true. (laughs) We still struggle with temptation, but we have some powerful weapons in the battle. One of them is prayer. One of them is absolutely prayer. And do you remember what Jesus said to His disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, pray that you will not enter into temptation. Why? The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Have you found that to be true? In the battle against temptation, the Spirit is willing, but our flesh is so weak. And that's why Jesus, when He taught us the Lord's Prayer, He says, forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. But what's the next phrase? Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That petition of the Lord's Prayer is an honest confession that we cannot overcome temptation on our own. We can't. We need God's help. And when we cry out to Him, will He help us? <laughs> yes. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, what? Will provide the way of escape. God will provide a way of escape. We don't need to be engulfed by temptation. We don't need to be caught by it. Don't toy with it. When that temptation comes, oh God, help me. God, deliver me. I am weak. God, help me. And another weapon we have? We have the Word of God, don't we? There's that battle picture in Ephesians chapter 6. The Christian armor. The sword of the Spirit is what? It's the Word of God. What did Jesus do when he was tempted in the wilderness? Every time he was tempted, he said what? It is written. We can point to the Scripture. We can use the, the Word of God when, when Satan comes and tempts us. And there are times when I have out loud verbally said, Get behind me, Satan. It is written. And there is power in the Word of God. You may think that I'm a broken record, but I don't care. I'm going to say it again. This is why we need to be in the Word of God every day. Every day. I hope your time in the Word isn't just on Sunday morning when you come to church and you hear a sermon. If that's all you get from the Word, you are going to be open to temptation. You need to be in that Word every day. That's how you grow. That's how you battle against the temptations that come our way. I will never stop asking you, are you spending time in the Word every day? I don't care if you get tired of me saying that to you. It is that important. It is that vital. You need to be in God's Word every single day. God's Word will show you you can't blame anyone but yourself. God's Word will help you recognize those, those temptations, those steps into sin. And God's Word will give you the power to be triumphant. There is victory. There is victory. Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the power of Your Word. Thank You for Your saving grace. Thank You for Your Holy Spirit's work in us. Lord, help us to be triumphant over temptation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.